Well, you know, last week um, I got, uh, I was talking to a young lady who recently started attending our church, and she says, yeah, I sat down and it was like, uh, I was curious, why, is it, why some people around me are working with notebooks? Why do they have notebooks out there? And about halfway through the sermon, I realized that that little sheet of paper you give us isn't nearly enough. So um, feel free, if you want to bring notebooks, all that to say, bring notebooks. I've had some people bring laptops. I know sometimes I tend to talk fast, I've been told once or twice, um, and sometimes I have a lot of material. So if you want to bring a laptop or an iPad or whatever it takes, feel free. Right? I've, I've had some people show up with laptops and then they stop showing up and I ask why and they say, it well, feels a little bit weird because I feel like I'm being like super Christian or something by bringing a laptop. It's okay. If you want to be a super Christian, bring your laptop, bring whatever it takes because we do tend to cover a lot of material and I guess what I'm saying is maybe you should have brought a laptop today. Um, so last, well, three weeks ago, we learned from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that one of the ways we are transformed into being like Jesus Christ is to have our minds set upon him, is to be focused upon him, is to be arrested by his amazing work on our behalf. Recently, I got back into motorcycling about six weeks ago and been reminded again of the, the principle of target fixation, and that is wherever your eyes go, that's where you are going to go. That's a great principle for our discipleship, right? Wherever we have our focus, wherever we have our gaze, that is where we're going to go. A biblical principle is we become what we worship, and so whatever we're gazed upon, that's what we are becoming like, and so 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, when we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into that image from one degree of glory to another. Well, last week we learned from Ephesians 4.15 that in our very speaking to one another, we are made to be like Jesus Christ. We are brought into the maturity of Jesus Christ. So if you put those two together, both in our concentration and our communication, one, something we do internally, the other is part of a community we're a part of, in our concentration and our communication, we are conformed to be like Christ. That was a lot of alliteration there. Concentration, communication, conform to be like Christ, but it's true. Let me add another C to that today. In our conflict, as well as our concentration and communication, we are conformed to be like Jesus Christ. That's going to become very clear in a little bit. But here's the good news for you in light of that. If you have conflict in your life, if you have conflict in your marriage, understood biblically, that conflict itself can be the seeds of your conformity to be like Jesus Christ. That conflict itself, if you understand it biblically, can be the seeds for your ongoing spiritual growth. Now, if you are someone here and you have a conflict-free life, right? Traffic magically parts for you on the 405. You have self-parenting children. Your wife or husband are just in awe and basks in the light of your greatness. Then I've got nothing for you this morning. But I suspect, like me, you have a life full of conflict. You don't have self-parenting kids. Wouldn't that be great? People don't always agree with the decisions you make. Traffic never parts for you on the 405. You sit there for four or five hours. Life is full of conflict. If that is true of you, then I've got something for you this morning. It's, it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be good. It will be hard, but some of the best things in life are hard. And this is our fifth week in our series, The Grace of Life, Planting Seeds for a Marriage That Matters. And this morning, obviously, the topic is on conflict, but more to the point, it is God's redeeming your conflict for His glory and your good. Now, this is the first time I'm talking about conflict in the, 
in the context of marriage, but if this isn't the first time I've talked about conflict while I've been a pastor here. As a matter of fact, this is the third message I'm giving on conflict. And, and I just want to highlight to you our website. This is something that our, our office staff maintains, and it has become a fantastic resource. I don't, if you've been around in churches long enough, do you remember churches used to have a tape ministry library? Right, remember that? You used to go back to the back in the lobby and there's like all these tapes or CDs and then you'd sign out a bunch of things. Well, now we have this all online. And so every sermon that's ever been preached from this pulpit in the last six years is archived online. And so if you just go to our sermon page, you'll see all of our sermons. And if you just go to the search box right there, type in any kind of title or you can drop down and search by speaker or series or date and it will automatically find them for you. So if you type in the word conflict, for example, you will get the first sermon I preached, Resolving Everyday Conflict, back in 2015. If you type in the word heart, you'll get a lot of sermon titles, but one will be The Danger of a Divided Heart. Both of these sermons have to do with conflict, um, but they're about the internal mechanics of what's going on in our hearts when we're engaged in conflict. Um, and they're both, by the way, an exposition of James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, because that's the, that's the seminal passage in the New Testament that makes us try to realize what's happening in our hearts when we're engaged in conflict. So this isn't the first message on conflict, but it is the first sermon that's dealing with the, maybe the external mechanics of conflict, how it relates to our relationships, and particularly in our marriage, but also just in life. So this morning… I want to make two broad points. The first one is I want to explain the difference between self-glorifying ways, uh, ways of dealing with conflict as opposed to God-glorifying ways to, to uh, deal with conflict. And then secondly, I want to then actually explain a God-glorifying way to deal with conflict. So let's look at them one at a time. Number one, self-glorifying and God-glorifying responses to conflict. Friends, if there's any truth to the axiom that life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% of what you're going to do with what happens to you, then that is no more true than in the area of how we handle conflicts. I want to show you this graphic. It's great. It comes from Ken Sandy's Peacemaker book. And basically, Ken makes the case that there are three general ways that people happen to respond to conflict in our lives. Handling conflict, more particularly, handling conflict in a way that will make you more like Jesus and not less like Jesus is a slippery slope. That's why he calls it the slippery slope. And it's very easy to slide down one side of this slope or the other. And so we want to explain each of these sides of the slippery slope that we can walk down because I think as you find that generally speaking, this is very true. In my counseling, I found that people, I use these different metaphors, that people fall into two camps. I call them either the deep freeze camp, and those are the people that just, when it comes to conflict or interpersonal relationships or issues in your marriage or relationships, they just shut down. They go cold on you, right? That's the deep freeze, like all of a sudden the cold shoulder, and they don't say another thing. On the other hand, there's the deep freeze people, but you also have the people I call the flamethrower people, right? And they just explode and let you have it. And I found, as a general rule, people tend to fall in one of those two kinds of camps. So let's take a look at them. And as we're doing this, maybe you kind of realize, maybe you might see yourself in some of this. Let's take a look at the first group that Ken Sandy calls the escape responses. When these people face conflict of any sort, 
they're, they're not really interested in resolving the conflict. They're not even really interested in the relationship that the, the conflict is being expressed in. They're interested in avoiding or getting away from the conflict rather than resolving it for the sake of the relationship, right? And that's very true. And in and, and, and this escape pattern, there's a couple of things that they will do. The first one is just denial. Friends, the, the easiest way to avoid conflict is just pretend it doesn't exist, right? You've all seen that experience. You've all kind of had the experience of asking someone, hey, what's wrong? It looks like something's bothering you. What's wrong? Nothing. Is everything okay? Fine. Everything's just fine. That's denial. It's pretending the conflict doesn't exist. It's the easiest way to avoid conflict is just plain pretend it's not there. Now, this might bring some temporary relief, right, because you're avoiding the actual conflict. But friends, let me tell you, you can only sweep so much under that rug before everybody in your life starts tripping over it. Denying conflict does not solve it. Denying conflict does not make it go away. It just actually makes it worse. The second thing that people do when it comes to conflict in this escape kind of response is if, if they're not going to deny it, if they can't deny it, they will engage in the second aspect of it, and that is flight. Another way to avoid conflict, if you can't pretend it doesn't exist because it is just too obvious at that point, is just run away from it. And friends, this can take many forms, can't it? Everything from ending a friendship, quitting a job, leaving a church, filing for divorce, you run away from the situation. Now, granted, let me be clear, there are some instances in life that uh, running away is a right kind of thing. I think of a great example in 1 Samuel chapter 19 where David is ministering to Saul and Saul, the Scripture says, got so mad at David that he hurled a spear at him, right? And then the text says, David ran away. Yes, you, you can't reason with people who are being unreasonable. There are some instances where flight is the best idea, issues like abuse, those kinds of things. You don't want to be around that environment. You need to run away. But most conflicts we face are not the extreme forms of abuse that you're going to face, like you see people hurling spears or things of that nature. And oftentimes, running from our problems doesn't make it better. It just widens the divide in the relationship and deepens the hurt. So denying and flight, neither one of those are satisfactory. And then you might see this one. You might be surprised to see suicide on that list. And, and granted, friends, this is the most extreme and tragic form of someone who just does not want to deal with the conflicts in their lives. This is an extreme form of it. But when someone has lost all hope of resolving the conflicts in their life, they are seeking the ultimate escape. And so they put that as kind of an extreme to show that if you participate in things like denial or flight, the ultimate end of that way, that response to life, is the ultimate escape. Now, what do all these have in common? Denial, flight, and suicide. At the end of the day, all these three share in common that whatever they might say, the relationship that's causing the conflict is not the most important thing, but how they feel is more important than anything else, especially doing the hard work of loving others. And so it's easier to deny the problem, it's easier to run away from the problem, or it's easier just to end it all. And we see how, 
how brutal this is, but when you think about the way you tend to engage in conflict, is it somewhere in this category? That you don't want to even acknowledge that the problem is there. It's just it's embarrassing for whatever reason. Or you're just going to run from it because that's the way you deal. And you run from it maybe physically, maybe with substance, whatever it might be. You drown yourself in your entertainment so you just don't want to have to deal with the conflict. These are typical responses. In some ways, these responses, they're not seeking to make peace. But notice that all these responses, denial, flight, suicide, they're faking the peace. It's about peace faking, not peace making. Now, while some people may fall down this side of the slippery slope, there's also another side of the slippery slope you can fall down to, and let's talk about that. And that's what's called the attack responses. And this is very different, although in some ways similar to the escape responses. And you know these kinds of people, right? They're the ones that, that blow up really quickly. They get real angry real fast. They lose their tempers. These are the flamethrowers I talked about. And just like the escape responses, there's a couple patterns that they have. Now, like the escape responses, the attack responses, they're not interested in the relationship. They're not interested in the relationship. They're interested in winning. They're not concerned about reconciliation or restoring. They're concerned about winning the conflict and persevering at whatever price. And so the first attack response is assault, and this can be in the form of just intimidation or some kind of force, verbal attacks, shouting, yelling, screaming, right? Harsh criticism, belittling sarcasm, nagging even, or threats, and sometimes it goes beyond just verbal, it can become emotional or physical abuse. Whatever it takes to win, that's what they're going to do. And this happens in marriages, this happens in any relationship, it's an attack response, and you've seen it, right? They don't escape, they're not avoiding, they go on the attack. Then when simple assault, whatever kind of assault that might be, doesn't work, it moves into kind of a litigation, and this is where people will bring in systems around us to bring you harm. I remember I was having a conversation trying to disciple a man in our church who had an anger problem, he had an attack problem, and when it kept getting exposed time and time again, and we kept confronting it, I remember him trying to set, uh, bring a lawsuit or threaten me with uh, suing me, and I think it was like ecclesiastical malpractice. I haven't even heard of that word, right? But it was ecclesiastical malpractice, and he was going to sue me and get me fired and all this stuff. He was a flamethrower, and he was throwing flames. But litigation is when people try to bring in systems to do you more harm. Maybe it's a, a battle over a parent's estate, custody battle over children whatever it could be. It could be simple Christians trying to sue other Christians, even though God's Word says in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8, it, it specifically prohibits that, yet it doesn't matter because it's about winning. We can be this way in our marriages. We can be this way in our friendships. And the logical end of the attack response, if, if, if intimidation and force and abuse don't get me what I want, if litigation and threatening you with systems to bring you harm doesn't bring you what I want, the ultimate end we see here is murder. Now, thankfully, this is not a scenario that most of your conflicts are ever going to have to deal with. So you might be thinking, okay, so that obviously doesn't apply to us. But if you know your Bibles, what does Jesus say? Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 22, he says that if there's anger in your heart towards another brother or sister, you're going to kill that relationship. And Jesus says, and you're liable for that. 
You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Why does Jesus say that? What You mean we can't even be angry with brothers and sisters? We can't even, why? Because remember at the very beginning when we talked about communication, what is in the heart is going to come out in your life. And what is in the heart is what you believe, is who you are. And so while you may not live out of that kind of malice and hatred that ends in murder, Jesus says, but if there's anger in your heart, that doesn't mean it's virtue that prevents you from acting on that. Maybe you're a cowardice of the, the consequences. So if there's anger in your heart, you're going to kill those relationships, and you'll be liable for that as well. Friends, if um, the escape responses are people who I call the peace fakers, then the attack responses are the people we call the peace breakers. One group is just faking that there's peace. Another group does not care about the peace. And neither of those response patterns, friends, and maybe you're kind of thinking to yourself, are you, are you one of the escape artists or are you one of the attack people? Where do you fall on that spectrum? You don't, have to, you don't have to say anything, but think about it to yourself. Where do you fall on that spectrum? Notice what they both share. As, as very different as those responses are on the surface, what do they share in common? Neither of them care about the relationship. If you've got a husband and wife and you're attacking and escaping, none of you care about the marriage itself, Right? None of you care. It's either your emotional comfort or your emotional victory. That's what's driving the interactions between the both of you. The peace fakers, they just want to feel like everything's going to be okay and they want to ignore it or run away from it. The peace breakers, they just want to win. And neither one of them are interested in doing the most important thing God says there is apart from loving him. What is that? Matthew chapter 22. The first greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The peace faker, the peace breaker, they're only concerned about themselves, not their husbands or wives. Now, the reality is some husbands and wives will become the, will go for the escape response. Some husbands and wives will go for the attack response, but the reality is We've seen this oftentimes enough that they actually switch back and forth. And husbands and wives go back and forth between escape and attack until they're just doing this destructive dance of conflict time and time again. Right, so we have to be aware of how do I tend to respond when I'm faced with conflict? One husband or wife might opt for the escape plan until they're backed into a corner, and then guess what happens? They go on the attack. Some husbands and wives, they start off wanting to attack until they get counterattacked by their spouse, and then they give up their hands and try to escape. And they go back and forth and back and forth, and it's exhausting. So as you sit here thinking, I want you to think, okay, what's me? Am I the escaper? Am I the attacker? Am I involved in denial or flight or, or even... Uh, ending it all, right, hoping that that's not where you're at, but that's the extreme end of it, or are, am I the person that just goes on the assault, and I just go after, and I tighten the screws even more? Which one are you? And the reason it makes it hard to, to see the error in it, if you're the escape response person, what's the common thing you tell yourself or tell others why that's what you do? 
I just, I'm just trying to be nice. I, don't wanna, I just want to be nice, right? Well, you're actually just being nice to yourself, but you're not being loving, right? By the way, the Bible doesn't call us to be nice. The Bible calls us to love, right? So the escape response people can justify it because they think they're trying to be nice. The attack response people try and justify it because they say what? I'm just speaking truth, right? I'm, I'm, I'm about being truthful. Well, they're not, right? Because truth is always wed with love. You don't have truth without love. That, that's not true truth. And so it's very easy to justify what we do because on the one hand, we're just trying to be nice, and on the other hand, we're standing for truth. But neither one of them are pursuing love. And that's what the Bible calls us to pursue in our conflict, right? But friends, thankfully, there is a third way a better way than how we typically handle that. One that's not just about the individuals involved, but one that's about the relationship that we share. We don't have to be peace fakers. We don't have to be peace breakers. Matthew 5, 9 said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. Okay, so let's take a look at some of those responses here. Now, I want you to notice here in these godly responses, so there's escape responses, there's attack responses. Now we're going to talk about the godly responses. Notice there's quite a lot of them there. There's, notice I want you to the first three overlook reconciliation negotiation. Those are things that you as individual Christians can participate in just one-on-one -on -one in the conflicts in your lives. And there's also three other ways, counseling, mediation, church discipline, that others can get involved to help you work through conflict. Now, we can't look at all six of them this morning, but I'll talk about the most common two of the personal and then the interpersonal as well. The first one is what the Bible says is overlook. Overlook an offense. Uh, 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 King James uses the word forbear an offense. Friends, the first way to um, resolve conflict is simply choose to not be offended. Can I say that again? The easiest way and the best way to resolve conflict is simply choose to not be offended. Friends, this is a choice you will make in life as much as anything else. Let's look at the scriptures. Proverbs 12, 16. The vexation of a fool is known at once. They're the flamethrower. But the prudent ignores an insult. Proverbs 19, 11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Why do we do this? And there's so many more scriptures we could use, but 1 Peter 4, 8 captures it beautifully. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Since love covers a multitude of sin. Friends, overlooking an offense, it, it's not... Denial. It's different from denial, and it's different from flight. You're not saying, oh, there is no conflict, so I'm just going to overlook the sin. No, that's not what it is. It's not running away from it. It's acknowledging there is something wrong. There was something that was done against me that was wrong. There's some tension here, but you know what? It's okay. I can absorb that slight. I can absorb that comment. I can overlook what they did. They didn't intend it that way. I can absorb that. Friends, can I say that so much of what uh, in churches gets people kind of 
huffy and upset. They're really petty. They're really small. And yet, we allow them to offend us. So much in marriages, we allow to get us upset and uptight, and they're just so tiny. Yes, he heard the sermon, and for the hundredth time, the sock is still next to the hamper, and he didn't put it inside. Yes, he should do that. But you can overlook that, right? You guys guys get what I'm saying yet? But so often we allow these things to build in us, and we get offended, and we get upset. I'll tell you something. I was working at a level 12 institute for the county of Los Angeles. It was a boy's home. The level 12 is as high as you can go before you're institutionalized and basically medicated the rest of your life. My first day on the job, uh, I was working as a cottage supervisor, a cottage worker, and, and a, an employer, employ, somebody who had been there for years, was a veteran, she looked at me and she knew, you ain't going to last three weeks, and she didn't even care. So she's just kind of giving me through the rundown, literally while a chair comes flying through one of the cottage windows on the other side of campus. She turns around and looks at me and says, look, here's the key to making it work here. And because the way she said it to me, she knew I wasn't going to be there three weeks. I ended up being there for three years but it, because her advice was helpful. Here's the key. And it's applicable to your marriages. It's applicable to your life in a church. It's applicable to life. She says, you've got to have a thick skin and a short memory, and you'll be okay. Man, when she told that to me, it, it, the context was completely different. But I thought, boy, this is like advice for life. Have a thicker skin and a shorter memory, and I'll be okay. Friends, the best way to avoid conflict, to to, to have a conflict-freer life, is to learn to be able to overlook. Don't personalize what wasn't intended to be personal. Oh, that person looked at me that way, or they didn't look at me at all. I mean, good, what's going on here? Make a choice to say, I'm not going to be offended, because there's so many other things in this world that require my emotional energy, like the gospel and fighting for holiness and fighting against sin. That's what I want to pour my energies into, not the little petty things that so often trip us up in our lives, in our marriages, and in our churches. However, I'll get back to our slide here. So overlook's the first thing. If you cannot overlook it, it there, and, and you cannot overlook what has been done, your options is not to go into the escape route or go into the attack route. The Bible says the option open to you is what's called reconciliation. If you cannot overlook the offense, if you cannot absorb it, if you cannot forbear it, your only choice is not to get into denial or to flight or assault or anything else. The Bible says you've got to go and be reconciled. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about that more in point number two. So, but how do we know when the offense is something I can overlook? So here's a category. Number one, uh, if the offense seriously dishonors God, you have to reconcile. You can't leave it alone. Now, the reason I say seriously dishonors God is because, let's be honest, we're all sinners. We're dishonoring God all the time, Right? We are just dishonoring God all the time. A serious dishonoring of God is a conscious, intentional, or such flagrant actions that it's bringing disrepute on the gospel itself. If that's what's going on, you can't overlook it. you got to engage it, right? The, the other category is that if the, the offense or the sin is permanently damaging a relationship. So like if someone shares a story about you and you were kind of the foil and a bit embarrassed about it, 
you can, you can overlook that. If somebody is continually sharing stories, if your spouse is continually embarrassing you or disrespecting you, and, it, and it's, it's causing a wedge in your relationship, then you need to reconcile with that. So if it's a serious dishonoring to God, if it's seriously damaging the relationship, here's the third one. If it's seriously hurting others, if your spouse drinking is getting problematic, don't deny it. Don't run from it. Don't attack them. You need to be reconciled. If it's hurting them, and the fourth one, if it's seriously hurting other relationships. So things like gossip, drinking to excess, that's when we can't overlook things and we have to engage and be reconciled. In your marriage, are there, are there things that you should be overlooking and some things that you are overlooking that you shouldn't be? We often get those confused, right? So our first response is we should overlook. And if we can't overlook, we have to go and be reconciled. We'll talk a little bit more about the details on that on point two. And, and, and the way you know you can't overlook it is that it's seriously dishonoring God. It's seriously damaging relationships. They're hurting themselves or they're hurting others. You got to engage. Now, those are the two personal things we can, what the Bible calls us to do as Christians. I'm going to leave negotiation because that's more of a technical thing. I want to move into the, three, the two other things that the church body can help with. Look at the one right here. The number one is counseling. If for some reason as you're seeking reconciliation, you, you can't kind of communicate well with each other, you get, can't get past each other, then the first step for you to do is seek counseling, whether that's uh, informally in the body of Christ or formally with somebody who really knows how to help you through those things. Friends, that's one of the benefits about being in a Christian community. There are so many people around you, just look around you, that have so much wisdom from God's Word to give you and life experience that can be so helpful. What Scripture says, Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Just moving into each other's lives, working with each other, you're fulfilling the law of Christ by bearing a burden with another couple that might need help getting your perspective on what's happening in their marriage. Romans 15.14, Paul says this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And then finally, we looked at last week, uh, Ephesians 4.15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So you overlook, and if there's things you can't overlook, you get reconciled. If you can't get reconciled and you need help, you get counseling from a brother or sister in Christ, another married couple that you have relationships with so that they can help you, they can instruct you, they can be gracious with you and help you see things you don't see. If for some reason that counseling does not work, there's another step called mediation, and that's typically when things get so complex, more counselors or more elders are brought in because the stakes are a little bit higher, then they work with you. The point I'm trying to get at here, friends, is there is a lot more we can do than run away or attack when we face our conflicts in our marriages or in our lives. Scripture is replete with how we can deal with this. The challenge is, like I said on the first end, this is good, but it's hard because our initial attack and escape responses, they are a lot easier, aren't they? But it's a short-term gain and a long-term loss. As a pastor, and you talk to any of the pastors who do counseling here, we can testify to that. Running away, hiding it, denying it, attacking it may solve it temporarily, but you're just kicking that can down the road. 
deal with it. Overlook it. Reconcile. Get counseling from brothers and sisters in Christ, whether it's informally or formally. Allow the church to do its job in helping you mediate, and then ultimately the, there is this thing here called church discipline. We can talk about that at some other time. I just want to point out that there's four things you can do immediately. Now let's talk about a God-glorifying way to handle conflict. If you have a Bible, uh, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, if you need to use a pew Bible, go to page 900. Okay, I want to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, into chapter 11, verse 1. So just a few verses. Listen to what Paul writes, and we'll unpack this a little bit. So, Paul concludes this major section of 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, this is a very significant few verses that Paul is talking about because if you know anything about the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is ending uh, basically 10 chapters of nothing but, guess what? Conflict. Chapters 1 through 4 of the book of 1 Corinthians, it's all about the divisions and fa factions within this church. Chapters 5 through 6, it's about this moral and ethical dilemma that was taking place in the church. There was Christians calling themselves Christians and, and committing incest and doing all kinds of manner of disgusting things. And Paul's saying, you got to deal with this. Chapter 7 dealt with issues of marriage and divorce. Then we get into chapter 8, there's issues of, of food sacrifice to idols and cultural idolatry and false worship. Chapters 9 and 10, all these criticisms against Paul's ministry and more uh, uh, food sacrifice to idols and false worship. And so when he writes this at the end of 10 chapters, all he has been dealing with in this crazy church of the Corinthians is conflict. But notice what he says in these few verses. Dealing with conflict of just internal conflict, and then when he was trying to deal with that, they turned the guns on him and started bringing criticism against him. This is what he says. In everything we do, whether we're eating or drinking, that's a hint back to the contentious nature of the food sacrifice to idols. He says, look, whatever we do, eating or drinking, we do this to God's glory. Even the conflict we experience is an opportunity to bring glory to God. Notice how then the second point is he's trying to serve others, the people within the church. Whether he's serving them by helping them bear a burden or he's serving them by confronting them with truth he wants something for them better than they have now. And then, then chapter 11, verse 1, this is going to be a chance to be like Jesus Christ. Friends, we are so often preoccupied in our marital fights about either ending it, escaping it, or, or winning it. We don't even see these opportunities in the midst of the conflict. Whenever we get into arguments or conflict or, or, or problems with each other, we're so concerned about either I've got to get away for it or I'm going to win that we don't even see that, you know, there's an opportunity here to, for God to be glorified. We'll talk, unpack that a little bit. There's an opportunity for me to serve you, to be more like Jesus, and there's an opportunity for both of us as a result to be imitators of Jesus Christ. 
because we're so focused on our attack or escape responses. So I want us to take a step back and go, man, this is what Scripture is talking about, conflict. Every conflict, friends, there is an opportunity to glorify God, to serve others, and to be like Jesus. And we see that right here. Let's look at them one at a time. So, so how, do we, how does conflict glorify God? Well, well, we see it pretty quickly in what Paul says here, but number one, we see this conflict helps us glorify God by trusting God, by obeying him, and, and by doing those two, imitating Jesus Christ. Look what Scripture says. Here's one we, most of you know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your, your, straight, he'll make your straight your paths. Can you trust him in your conflict? Okay, this is a verse, if you've been a Christian for longer than a year, you know this. Let's put it in the context. Can you trust him with the conflicts in your marriage? Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't do the thing you want to do. Don't deny it. Don't run from it. Don't attack. Can you trust him enough to deny your impulse to respond in a self-glorifying way? That's what that means to trust him. We can also glorify God in our conflict by obeying him. This John, Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep obey my commandments. Friends, this is so important. Man, because we believe in grace, right? We do, totally. I'll go to the mat on that, but Jesus says, you want to prove that you love me. I don't care what you feel about me, what you say about me. Are you obeying me? Are you doing the thing I said you should or shouldn't do? Don't give me lip service. Give me life service. Obey me. We can't just talk the talk. We've got to walk the walk. Finally, so we can glorify God by trusting him, by obeying him. When we do those things, Ephesians 5.1, we are imitators of God as his beloved children. Friends, when we engage in our initial escape or attack responses to assault people, to whatever is, slander them, gossip about them, or you attack your wife or husband or nag them or you're harshly critical with them or you deny there's any problems or you run away from the problems, you're not trusting the Lord. You're trusting into your own understanding. If you want to keep God's glory front and center when you're having conflict, here's the question you keep asking yourself. How do I please and honor God in this situation? How do I please and honor God in this situation? Because the attack and the escape response, you know what question that is trying to answer? How do I protect or justify myself? Now, obviously, this is not a conscious level. You're not asking yourself that. But by your behaviors, that's the question you're trying to answer. How do I protect myself? How do I uh, justify, vindicate myself? And I protect myself by escaping. I vindicate myself by winning. But that's not glorifying God. The question to ask is, how do I please and honor God in this situation? That's how we can glorify God. The second one is, is get out the log. This is a principle based on Matthew 7, 5, where Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Friends, except in rare circumstances, because there are some, but very rare. We contribute to just about every conflict you are embroiled in. However small that contribution might be, we are contributing to it. I mean, you are a sinner, right? I mean, I'm assuming if you're a sinner, this is true of you. 
however small it might be, it's a rare situation that's not the case, but most times we are contributing some way. And what the Lord is saying is, are you even aware what that is? In order to see more clearly, you need to take the speck out of your eye, or excuse me, the log out of your eye, before you can start taking out the speck from your neighbor. What kind of logs are there in our eyes? Basically, there are two types. One's attitudinal. Maybe you have a critical or negative or overly sensitive attitude that perpetuates conflict, right? Maybe you have a self-righteous, um, you're always right, do it my way kind of attitude. Maybe that's perpetuating conflict. What, what's going on in your heart? Are, are you that way? Check your attitude, right? The second way we can contribute is, is outright sinful words and actions. We, we actually do things that are sinful. And, and it's hard because when, when your husband or wife does something that is it's very frustrating or, or, or just triggers you, whatever it might be, you can respond in a sinful manner, and, and then they respond in a sinful manner, and you're just down the, the vortex of sin and sin and more sin. Remember this principle, their sin does not make your sin not a sin. My wife's sin, your husband's sin does not make my sin not a sin, regardless of what they have done. It doesn't justify me responding in a sinful manner. Remember, if life is only 10% of what happens to you, 90% of what you do with what happens to you, I always control my responses. Husbands, wives, you always control your responses, right? Could it actually be that I've, I've, I've committed sinful words or actions in the midst of it? But, and here's something that's challenging, because the Bible teaches us that we are blind to our own sins. Husbands, wives, if you're embroiled in a constant argument about the same kind of thing, it's a good chance because neither one of you actually sees yourself as clearly as, as you think you see yourself. And so this is where take advantage about being part of the body of Christ. Bring a couple in. Nobody here is going to be shocked and say, wow, you don't have a perfect marriage? Oh, man, wow. Nobody's going to do that. In fact, what's going to happen is they're probably going to say, we're not alone. We thought we were the only ones who struggled this way. Get the counsel of brothers and sisters who might see you differently, more objectively, to speak into your lives. But can I give you a tip? If you are the godly friend or couple that's brought in, as helpful as your personal experience and opinions might be, you have an obligation to give them the life-imparting, faith-growing Word of God. Nothing of your life or your experience compares to God's Word. Psalm 119, 130 says, the unfolding of Scripture brings light, and it gives wisdom to the simple. Please, if, if you are given a gift to, to help another couple struggle through something, don't give them your personal experience. And please don't give them what Oprah said or Dr. Phil or Dr. Laura, as helpful as those might be, or Dr. Roadheaver for that matter. Give them Scripture. Give them the Word of God. Okay? Okay? Now, what makes this process really hard, and I'm going to go a little bit over, I apologize. What makes this process a little bit hard is on the surface, uh, 
the, the thing you're arguing through with your husband and wife is not on the surface typically sinful or corrupt, right? I've never had a, fam- a couple come in and, and they're fighting because one spouse refuses to help the other spouse in tax evasion or money laundering or anything like that, or like an illegal drug trade. My hu- wife won't submit to me when I want to do a drug, tra- drug run. You know, that this never happens. So it seems like they're, they're usually really good things, like wanting to be understood, uh, being, per, uh, being respected, being loved, being valued. They're usually good things that aren't happening. And, and there's a fight over what's happening. And so that's what makes, how can I be contributing to this situation hard to detect, right? So, so let me give you something that we, we teach in our counseling classes here. I mean, this is like the worth of price of admission today. A good thing, being respected being loved, date nights regularly, right, whatever, can become a, ba- becomes a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. You're rarely going to have knockdown, drag-out fights like, about things that are obviously sinful. You're usually fighting about things that are legitimately good, and you're not getting them, and you want to know why, and you're trying to make it happen. But remember, friends, a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. Your good desires become sinful demands when, you, when, when your, your ultimate happiness, your joy, your value is rooted in that thing and not in the Lord Jesus Christ and God who you were created to image after. As good as date nights are, That's not going to give you the fulfillment that only Christ can bring you. As good as being respected is from your wife, that is not the source of your identity, so get off of it. And if she doesn't give it to you, it doesn't matter because your identity, the respect you need, comes from your father. And so often our good desires become sinful demands because we're not getting it and it's hard to see it because on the surface it seems right and good. See, this is where we got to do the hard work of looking at our hearts. Because something has gripped my heart, no matter how good it is, the Bible still says that's idolatry. Right? What's the first great, what's the first commandment? Ten commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And when when the thing you want in your heart is more important than anything else, that you will sin to get it, or you sin because you didn't get it, that's an idol. And when there's an idol in your heart, there's conflict with God. James chapter 4. When there's conflict with God, there's conflict everywhere in your marriage, in your family, in your friendships. That's how it works. So examine your heart. When you've done those two, that you are determined to bring God glory, you're going to trust Him, you're going to obey Him, and you want to imitate Christ, and you've done the hard work of looking at, man, there's idols in my heart here. Yes, we have a legitimate problem here, but I recognize I was gripping my idolatry and I, I was responding sinfully and getting angry or self-righteous. When you do that work, man, you can go and be reconciled because it, you're not about trying to get an edge up on your spouse. You now see the conflict as a rescue operation. You, you want your, your spouse to be more like Jesus Christ. That changes the entire nature of the conversation. It's not about you did this, you didn't do that. You start with saying, hey, let me just say, I got to own this. I sinned against you by doing this. I, I, I was worshiping a false god in my heart. And because you didn't do what that god wanted, I lashed out at you. And, and let's just get clear. I, I do feel like maybe we can work on certain things in our marriage. 
but I got to work on my heart. We got to work on our hearts too. Well, that's a very different conversation than just let me tell you why you're a jerk, right? Or, or why you did this for the hundredth time, or it changes things dynamically. You're both repenting of your sins. You're gracious with your shortcomings and you're honest about your failures, but you're hopeful that Christ can continue to give you the grace to keep changing. And that's why this, this isn't so much a marriage thing, although it is, because our marriages are microcosms of our macrocosm lives, right? It's a gospel thing. It's a Christian thing. But keep in mind, this whole series, you can't just take one bit of it. I'm going to take the communication thing. They all work together. While we're working through this conflict, it's not in isolation from how we're communicating. Remember how we learn to communicate is you're pursuing truth, you're pursuing reconciliation, you're pursuing grace, and it's in that larger context that you're working through your, your, your conflict as you're fulfilling the roles of husbands and wives, husbands doing the best you can to lead, love, and learn, wives doing the best you can to, to, to respect, follow, and help, right? Both of you recognizing that the gospel has to be the center of your marriage, that you're sinners in need of grace, but it's happening in this context of covenant, a permanence, right, of, of a fellowship that you're participating to be more like Jesus with a purpose to display the glory of God. All this works together. All this works together. Now, I've got to end, but running late, I apologize. Let me say this. If you're just kind of whetted your appetite like, man, okay, I just get a sense that there's a better way to handle conflict than I have been because I'm the flamethrower type and I've just been destroying relationships or I'm the denier and it is destroying relationships. I want to get better. In our Disciple Makers class every year, we offer an eight-week course called Resolving Everyday Conflict. Gary Bush and Dave Wicker will be teaching it in December. If you're a married couple, sign up. If you're a Christian, sign up. If you have a pulse, sign up, right? Because all of us need this. We need a, a community that's confronting each other, speaking truth in love for God's glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. We just kind of just start scratching on the surface of what you have to say about conflict. And we thank you for opportunities like our Sunday, our Disciple Makers class, to just spend hours thinking about how do we grow in this so common area of our lives. Father, give us the, the, the courage to be loving and the humility to be honest. We need that, Lord. We, we fail so much, and we need your grace to help us be what you have called us to be, what you enable us to be. We thank you that you give us not only our marriages, but a, a, a covenant relationship, but a covenant community where we can work these things out together. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.